you're better off making a decision and making your decision the right one. And you have no way of knowing how that other thing would have turned out. There's no sense in saying, oh, I should have done this. No, you shouldn't have, because you don't know how that would have turned out. You really don't, because you didn't do it. Now, they have seen that Jeopardy players who have quick buzzer skills, they actually practice hitting the buzzer faster. They are more likely to win. Now, why is that? Because they're hitting the buzzer before they know the correct answer. So that's what you need to do in life is you have to make that decision before you're even 100% sure that something is the right thing to do because you will win in life when you're making quicker decisions. Ah, so you're in action instead of in your head. Yes, like you say. Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts, And you know what? I spy a happier life for you, too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am your host, Tracy Otsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for episode number 212 of ADHD for Smartass Women. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter over at tracyoutsuka.com. My purpose is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it. And today's guest, Miriam Shulman, is an artist, author, and host of the Inspiration Place podcast. She's helped thousands of creatives around the world develop their skill sets and create more time and freedom to do what they love. Her signature coaching program, The Artist Incubator, teaches artists to go from so-so sales to sold-out collections. After witnessing 9-11, Miriam abandoned a lucrative hedge fund to become a full-time, thriving, working artist. Featured in major publications including Forbes, Entrepreneur, The New York Times, Where Women Create, Art of Man, and Art Journaling Magazine. Her artwork has also been featured on NBC's Parenthood, and the Amazon series Hunters with Al Pacino. When I decided that I wanted to write a book, I knew that I needed someone to help me with the book proposal, which is the first step you take to find a literary agent. I didn't know Miriam, but a friend alerted me to an Instagram post where she announced her book deal with HarperCollins. So I contacted Miriam asking about book proposal coaches, and she was so generous with her recommendations. And as luck would have it, we now have the same publisher, just a different imprint. But because Miriam is a year ahead of me, she's been such an amazing resource. Now, her book with HarperCollins leadership, Artpreneur, is officially out. Artpreneur provides the actionable steps to turn your creative ideas into a thriving business. Please welcome to the podcast, Miriam Shulman. (laughs) Miriam, I feel like we need like one of those cheering sections. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Did I get all of that right? Oh my God. You did. You were a rock star. So do you mind if I tell your listeners about stumbling over words? Because they should know. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So like artpreneur got stuck in Tracy's throat and I said, just wait until you record the audiobook." And like some sentences we had to record like several times. So I just recorded my audiobook 
And it's no joke. Like these words, and I ha- constantly had to have the audio engineer, could you look up how this is pronounced? Yeah. And it's, I mean, does that ever happen to you where it's simple words, you don't know how to pronounce them or you don't know how to spell them and you've done it all your life and all of a sudden there's just a glitch? Well, part of my audiological processing is that I do sometimes have trouble pronouncing simple words. So that's, that's, that is part of it. But during the two days that I was recording, I was, I was sharing that with one of the voice actors who was there to record something else. And he said, oh, no, no, that's not because – like you always think it's because of your learning difference, your, mm. you know, your neurodiversity. He says, oh, no, 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 I, I, we all have to do that. It's like, ah. oh, okay. But, but then but I, I wonder, but I do stumble. Like my my po- my podcast editor sometimes have to say to me, "What did you mean here?" <laughs> oh. Well, and I don't even notice. I'll have people um, send me messages after listening to the podcast, and they'll you know say something super nice, and then they will make a comment about, "Oh, and just so you know, you mispronounced blah blah blah." And I didn't even realize I'm. I mean, I know how to say it, but I didn't realize I mispronounced it on the podcast. So mm-hmm. anyway. Our normal protocol is to start with our guest's ADHD story, but some of you may remember that Miriam came to talk to us about ADHD and creativity about, I don't know, 18, 19 months ago. So if you're interested in her ADHD story, you can go to episode number 136, and we'll link that in the show notes. But today, I want to talk about your new book, which I believe will be so well-received, and I think that's because, Miriam, you corral us in by making it clear that you're one of us, so there's no question that you share a nonlinear creative brain, but then you provide such simple, uncomplicated, straightforward advice for creative entrepreneurs. I just loved this book. Oh, thanks. That means a lot to me coming from you, Tracy. I really appreciate it. You know, one thing that I think that people who are neurodiverse, our superpowers, is we do see the world differently. And sometimes that makes the world more difficult to navigate, but sometimes that's when we're able to see things others can't. That's why so many neurodiverse people make such wonderful artists and writers and creative because we are looking at the world through a different lens. And I think that's what this book does is I'm bringing to people, I'm connecting dots between things where you wouldn't normally make connections. And the other thing is when I do talk about productivity, I'm really bringing in all the coping strategies that I learned over the years because I have a neurodiverse brain, how I navigate that. So it definitely informed that section of the book. So there's one thing that you said that I immediately identified with certainly having an ADHD brain. And you just mentioned that to be an artist is actually to identify connections in the world, right? You help people see the world in a different way, but you also connected that to art and you said, that's exactly what art does. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I imagine there are artists who are not neurodiverse, but but artists do help people see the world differently. That is our role. That's our role as artists is to really help people see the world. So I'm curious because you make it all seem so easy and clear and simple. Do you think it, it's really not that hard to make a sustainable living using your creativity? And if yes, Did you always feel that way or was it a problem for you initially? Oh, no, I definitely did not always feel this way. And that's why I didn't go into art. That's why I went to Wall Street. You know, I was given the same Kool-Aid everybody else's. You can't make a living as an artist. You know, I came from a single parent household. My father had passed away when I was very young. I didn't have a trust fund or rich parents to fall back on. I had student loans. And when I was given the message, go make a lot of money, that's the point of working. I was like, fine, where, where do they make the most money? Wall Street. So that's why I went there. And when I quit my job in right around 9-11, so I actually did quit the job. I like to tell the story that, and then 9-11 happened. And then I decided to be an artist. (laughs) It's not exactly, that's the collapse narrative. So I quit, I quit my job and 9-11 happened and I decided no way am I going back. I need to do something else. So I started off working at 
a, a gym where they were teaching us how to sell personal training packages. And when I understood, this is where the neurodiversity really helped. When I saw them teaching me how to sell training packages and all the techniques they were using, I saw that I could apply it to selling portraits. So I wasn't so literal to think this only works for what they wanted us to learn it for. And that's when I started selling my art. And because I understood that the whole way you succeed is by being a really good marketer, I learned as much as possible about marketing. And I still stand by that. A lot of trolls on the internet, Tracy, will say to me, what do you mean uh, anyone can do this? What about talent? Or maybe people should just work on their art. And sadly, (laughs) sadly, there are a lot of talented people who do not succeed in every industry and, yeah, exactly. because they, they're not good marketers and marketing and mindset, because you can't have good marketing unless you have a good mindset. Marketing and mindset will trump talent every time. Well, and we know that to be true because we know so many people, right? Friends, yeah, we, we have so, we know so who, many people so who are talented, who are floundering. And then you look at people who are succeeding. It's like, well, how did they get to the top? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So let's back up a second and let's talk about what is art. Okay. That's a great question. And a lot of people have been pushing me on that question. So when I first wanted to write this book, I wanted to write it for me. <laughs> you know, just like for painters. And the publisher and my agent were like, well, you're not going to sell a lot of books that way. So you got to broaden the definition. So the art that in the book is it's anything you create. So that could be pottery, that could be sculpture, that could be dance, that could be writing. But the truth is, Tracy, once you make the definition that broad, you really can stick anything in that what is the art anything you create with your creative ideas. So if you are an ADHD coach, that is your art. If you're creating a podcast, that is your art. So it's all of those things. Well, it's exactly bringing it back to what you said. It's being able to make those connections, right? And doing things in a different creative way. And I always hear, certainly, you know, my ADHD women or our ADHD women, they say, I'm not creative because they're thinking of creative in a visual arts or performing arts kind of way. Yet I remember in the process of you writing this book, you saying to me, my book is also my art. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, it had to be. I mean, could you imagine? Like if I was, if I didn't put creativity into this? That would be the most boring book in the world. So what did your writing process look like? Oh, good Lord. Uh, <laughs> so it changed um, throughout. I, I I remember telling one, somebody was asking me that recently. And I said, yeah, well, for two weeks, I got up really early before, you know, with, I did the before breakfast thing, right? It lasted two weeks. I was so tired and I was like, it doesn't matter what time of day you do it. Uh, I do believe though that we have our best energy, our best genius time early in the day, but that doesn't mean you have to get up at six or seven in the morning because as, and I'm sure you've talked about this too, Tracy, you get decision fatigue throughout the day. And so it makes harder to make decisions, especially creative decisions. So I did try to get my writing blocks in the morning, but when I wanted to, after exercise, like around 10 o'clock, I have, would have writing blocks of time and I, I just would schedule it in my calendar. And what I said to myself was ass in the chair and ugly words, just get it done. And so how long would you go for? Uh, I don't think that I could go for more than two hours at, in a session. I mean, I can I can look back and tell you because I have like my written calendar right in front of me. But yeah, it, it's like I could maybe it would have four hours of creativity in me. There's that myth that if only we had more hours in the day, we would get more done. And, the, and that's a lie because we just don't have more energy. You need a lot of energy to put out your best work. And I think most of us only have about four hours in us. Yeah. You know, I am exactly the way you are on everything but writing. If I don't get it done in the morning, I mean, I just kind of drag it out, right? And it just takes longer and longer to get done. But there was something about writing. 
I could not, no matter how hard I tried, start before two or three o'clock. It just kills me. Well, that's me. fine too. I mean, there's something about clearing the dust off your brain. Like if you can't sit down and write because you know you have all this admin stuff to do for your business, or I don't know what it was that was like blocking you, but I do feel that mean. that... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was just <laughs> really hard for me to write. Um, it's probably the hardest thing that I do because there's so little action around writing, you know, you're yeah. expected to just sit there for hours at a time and focus like it's just in your brain. And I am much more of an action person than I am a sit down and focus in my brain kind of person. And I never even, I never even espoused that before. Like I never even thought about that, but I think that's why it was so hard because you have to be quiet and, you know, calm and not moving. Yeah. So I'm looking back at my calendar because I definitely remember having writing blocks in the afternoon and what would kill me, I'm like, I'm looking right like down now, like 10 to 12. And then I have- Cracks a- me up that you have this in your calendar. Oh, that's the only way it happens. Yeah. I have to schedule it. Um, but there are days where I like, if I have too much time on my calendar, I'll just piss away the day. And then it's like you, it's cause that's, that's such an ADD thing to do. You need that sense of urgency, you know, like. Yep. Yep. And so for me, it was the end of the day. Like I knew I would feel so bad. Yeah. It was such a struggle. And I knew I'd feel so bad if I didn't get it done. And so then two, three o'clock, I was like, crap. (laughs) I just got to do it. That totally happened to me too. Let's be, let's be total. Let's be perfectly honest. Okay. So you're not as perfect as I always think you are. I know. Wait, that's what I said. That's why I was laughing when you said process. Like, well, you know, Okay, but, so- but, I, but I knew certain things had to be done. I actually made my goals. I didn't have like a daily goal for things getting done, but I had a weekly one. So I knew that like, oh my gosh, if I didn't get it done, I, and you can't write the book the night before. Like what we did in college isn't going to work. Not that that exactly. ever worked. You know? You're right. You're right. And yeah. you had a pretty quick deadline too. It wasn't like you had a year to write this book. Yeah, they wanted the draft handed in, the manuscript handed in, in the end of December. But the truth is so much rewriting happened during that spring. I mean, and I ended up this past year, so we're having this, just for your listeners to know, we're having this conversation at the end of 2022. I only did one live launch this whole year because I just couldn't handle it. I had so much work to do on the book. and so much of my attention went there and I couldn't do energetically, couldn't launch and, and revise at the same time. And my revision process was almost like what some people's writing. I didn't know what I handed in was a rough draft. I thought it was like a a polished (laughs) manuscript. I was wrong. Yeah. You and me both. Yeah. There was a lot of work that happened after the developmental editor basically made the whole manuscript bleed on the floor. Like that's how much blood, if, you, if the red ink is the blood, that's what, you know, just makes you, I have this violent image of her stabbing my manuscript with a red pen. And it's like, like kind of like if you can imagine like Harry Potter when he's stabbing the the diary in, which book was that? The second book. No and the blood, and she has no idea. But but the nerds listening know exactly what I'm talking about. The, Harry, exactly. the Potterheads, they know what I'm talking about. And the exactly. ink is coming out of the book. Okay. Well, and the thing is that nobody really tells you how much work this is. You know, you mentioned that you could only do one launch of your program, which is that's the business, right? Yeah. Luckily, I did put it on Evergreen and we're looking at our numbers for the year. And now the Evergreen is so successful. I don't think I really want a live launch again. I'm like, this is great. <laughs> you know, it's going to keep it on Evergreen. Just keep refining that process. Yeah. But what we've experienced is not unique, right? I mean, my understanding is whenever you're writing a book, that's pretty much what you're focused on almost, you know, 20, not 24 seven, but kind of, because when you're not writing, you're still thinking about writing. Oh, yeah. And and like I said, it just pulls so much energy and emotion, emotion, emotion. Yes. And it's really hard. It's it is very hard and getting negative feedback was brutal. So I thought I was avoiding negative feedback because 
I was working with a book coach who was basically editing each of my chapters. And when I went th- through the HarperCollins process, they it was it was very harsh. And then all all the comments I got back, of course, I read in my mind like in a mean sarcastic voice. <laughs> it's really bad. And then finally somebody said to me, stop doing this. Read it in a neutral voice to yourself. Or or a positive voice. Right. Like they just, they want the people who are editing the book, they want you to succeed. They want the book to succeed. You're absolutely right though. That is the hardest part. It's, I have never been in a setting where I really don't have control because ultimately the editors know what they're doing. I have never done this before. Right. And so all it is, it's, it's, it's not true, but it seems to be just negative emotion on top of negative emotion. And I'm just like, please, I need some positive emotion. You, because you've never done it before, you feel like all you're ever hearing is everything that's wrong. So I had my mother read the book and that's where I got the positive feedback. Oh. Yeah. I actually, I knew I couldn't just send her a PDF. She would never read that. So I would put the chapter in email form for her Mm. at one at a time. And when she said she read it, that's when I would send the next segment. Okay. And so she gave me positive feedback and that really, really helped. Oh, I'm too mortified though, Miriam, to send it to anybody. (laughs) Just, and I'm, I'm way farther behind you, but maybe it's much better than you think. I'm sure. I'm sure it is. Yeah. Okay. So let's get back to your book. So in sales books, you typically see talk about believing in yourself, believing in your art. But you also talk about something I've never considered, believing in your buyer. And remember, art can be so many things, right? So what does believing in your buyer mean? And where did this come from? I love this part of the book. Thank you. I can pat myself on the back because I did make it up. Somebody was <laughs> asking me, like, where, where is this from? So we make sure we give them credit. I was like, it's my intellectual <laughs> property. So it's called the belief triad. So if you think about each thing, it's you, your product. Mm-hmm. So we define art very broadly here. Your art, your services, whatever it is you're producing in the world and then your buyer, your consumer, your reader, your collector, your listener, whoever that is. And so many times we sabotage ourselves because we don't believe in that third aspect. So the story I tell inside the book is I recap, recall, retell the story of pretty... (laughs) Are you going to edit that? You don't have to. So I retell the story of of Pretty Woman, where Julia Roberts is going to be Richard Gere's paid companion for the week, and he gives her his gold card so she can swap her hooker clothes for (laughs) something more respectable. And she goes dressed in her hooker clothes to Rodeo Drive, and the salespeople won't wait on her because they assume she doesn't have the money to pay for it. So after a more successful shopping spree, she returns to the same boutique, dressed gorgeously, loaded down with shopping bags of all the logo designer logos on it. And she rubs it into the salespeople. She was like, hey, you remember me? You wouldn't wait on me? Do you, do you work on commission? Big mistake. Now, how many times, Tracy, do we sabotage ourselves when we say, oh, our customers won't pay for that or that's too expensive for them? they don't want this. Or even just what you were saying earlier, my book isn't good. I have to say, Tracy, at the very end, when I was done, I was done. I almost handed back my advance because I wasn't believing in the buyer in that moment. Mm. I was like, oh, nobody at HarperCollins even likes the book. I should give my advance back. You know, like I had that crazy moment. Hell no. After all that work, no way. I know. So there's so many times when we don't believe in our buyer. So the way I see it showing up with artists is they'll say things like, oh, people don't buy art in Australia. Mm. I was like, really? Have you been to Sydney? That's an art capital, you know, or people don't buy art in Florida. Or during COVID. <laughs> or during COVID. Or, yeah. or, you know, people aren't shopping during a recession. Right. So we're not believing in the buyer. And yet we're whipping out our credit cards to buy things. Exactly. <laughs> you know? 
we're buying things during the recession because it makes us feel good. Feel It feels good to buy things. So don't deny your customer. You have to believe in what you're doing so much that you feel like the world will miss out if you're not offering it. That's how much you have to believe in your art, but you also have to be willing to believe that there are people out there who will also see it and you have to believe in them. And so what if you don't? What if you think your art just isn't good enough and you're completely wrong? It really is brilliant. Yeah, well, the not good enough thing is part of the human condition because we as humans were designed, our purpose is always to evolve and make ourselves better. That's our purpose in life, to evolve and make ourselves better. So we're always going to have that feeling that we're not there yet because if we were there yet, there'd be there'd be no purpose in our life. So that's something you have to recognize. And so what do you do? I mean, for that artist who's listening and they just feel like, I just you know, what if they know their art is good, but they just can't do it because it's so uncomfortable to get it out there and the criticism. And so maybe they don't know that they're good enough. Maybe that's exactly what it is. What do they do? Yeah. So I get asked a lot, how do I know if my art is marketable? And the only way you know is by start marketing it. (laughs) and, And then you won't know how to change it to make it more marketable if you don't start marketing it. Like, who knows? Maybe they love it, but they really want it in purple. No, I'm just like throwing that in there. Yeah. And you don't know that until you start marketing it. And the problem with social media is you don't get a lot of feedback in that kind of way. You're either going to get you know, you'll get a heart or they'll scroll past it or, or the algorithm doesn't show it to people. So when you get mostly silence on social media, you don't get that same kind of feedback. And that's why it's super important when you are marketing, whatever it is that you're doing is that you talk to real people in real life, however that looks like for you. Now that could be getting on the phone, that could be getting on Zoom, that could be going in person, whatever it is that you do, you do need to get in front of real human beings and get that real-time feedback from them. Well, it's the whole idea of perfectionism, right? Nothing's ever perfect. And if we don't throw it out there, we can't make it more perfect anyway, because we don't really know what that ultimate buyer wants. And they're the ones that are going to help us it's never going to be perfect, but they're going to help us get it closer to perfect by giving us their feedback. But it's not, it's more than just perfectionism because what I see happening, and again, not just in the art space, I see this in the entrepreneur space in general, is people have an evolving style. So that could be their art style, that could be their writing style, that could be their podcast style, that that could be their messaging. And they feel they can't put it out into the world until they have that all dialed in. Well, I call that sleeping beauty complex. So like the Disney movie, Sleeping Beauty, where they want to protect the princess. So they bring her, they take the baby and they put her into the woods and they don't bring her out again until she's a fully grown woman. Well, you got to love your baby as it's growing up and you got to bring your baby out into the world. Yes. When it has braces. Yes. When it has pimples. Yes. When (laughs) your baby's an adolescent and you let it evolve. My podcast doesn't look the same as it did when I first started and that's okay. And by the way, people still listen to those early episodes and they like them. Yeah. Yeah. So Ultimately, what we're doing is we're getting out of our head where we're dreaming up all these ideas of what really is going to happen, and we're getting into action to see what actually happens so we can correct, make it better, do it again, make it even better, you know, get feedback, make it better. It's through action instead of, you know, what we think is going to happen in our head. 100%. And bringing it back to like a baby analogy. So, and you mentioned perfectionism, which definitely is part of it. So part of the reason people don't want to bring something out into the world until in their mind, it's enough and perfected and fully evolved is they don't want to fail. Now, could you imagine a baby like saying, well, I, I can't start walking mom because I don't know how to do it yet you know, like the babies could talk. Or if a baby starts to walk and then it falls down, the mom's not going to say, well, I don't think this walking's for you. 
<laughs> but how many times do we do that? We we start something and then we fail and they're like, like maybe this isn't for me. No, that's part of the process. That's that's how you learn. Yeah, it's you not ha- failing, you have to fall right? down. You have to fall down. Like the, and you look at the people who go to the Olympics. Sometimes they still fall down. Like no <laughs> one gets there without falling down. And those are the greatest people in the world. You have to be willing to fall down. And it definitely gets easier and easier the more you fall. <laughs> yes. Pima Trojan has a beautiful metaphor about failure. And the way she describes it is it's like wading out in the ocean in the waves. And in the beginning, the waves are going to, when you're in the shallow, you know how they knock you down? But then the deeper you go in the water, the waves are still coming, but they don't knock you down anymore. Ah, that is beautiful. Yeah, there's a really nice um, book she wrote called Fail Better. It might be Fail, Fail Better. And it was a commencement speech that she gave. But you can get that in book form if you want to link that in your show notes. Absolutely. So I don't know. As I'm sitting here thinking about all this, you know, the key really is for everything, just getting comfortable failing, being bad at something, trying things, making them better. And if you can do that, I think you can be successful at anything that you really love and have a passion for. And be willing to be criticized. Isn't that about failing though? Well, not necessarily. You look at the Dalai Lama, he gets criticized. Brene Brown gets criticized. Do you ever look? One of my uh, things I like to do is go to somebody who's really, really famous especially like either authors or podcasters and look at how many negative reviews they have. Yeah. Yeah. Like nobody is above criticism. Like, and it's not necessarily that the people criticizing them are right or wrong. That's not the point. The point is, is that everybody is going to have lovers and haters. So like Elizabeth Gilbert, she has tons of criticism, tons and trolls and everything. And and whenever you show up in the world in the bigger way, that's always going to make somebody else feel small and less than And part of their conditioned response might be to criticize. Yeah. I I guess what I was saying is I just see criticism as like, I don't know, a rung in the whole failing thing where- But it's not not necessarily because not everybody has to agree with us. So they might disagree with you, but that doesn't mean you failed. Oh, That's what I'm trying to say. So you 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 can fit. That's why criticism- is not necessarily a failure. I totally, and, I totally get what you're saying now. Okay. okay. And when we put our stuff out in the world and we want it to be perfect and we don't want to be criticized, it's just like going back to, well, I thought that my book was going to be above criticism because I had it edited. <laughs> I was like, come on. And I was also told, you know, I don't, I didn't have to take any of the developmental edits. Uh, my, one of the editors who worked with me, she said to me, they had an author and I'm dying to know who it was. Cause I, it's probably one of those dishy bro marketers. One of the people who, that they, in my Harper Collins leadership imprint that they worked with in the past year, we can guess who it is. Maybe, I don't know, declined all developmental edits. They, it came back and they rejected everything. And so what did the editors do? No. no they, that's, did they publish that, it that way? Yeah. I'm curious yeah. how the book did. I don't, I don't know which one it was. Crazy. Nobody told me. I mean, maybe I can cut, cuddle up to that editor and say, hey, you want to tell me now? But I don't think she will. I think she has too much integrity. Wow. So the one thing, though, you can't reject are the copy edits, although I did reject some of those. So one of the copy editors – so in my book, the developmental editor, who is Jewish – did not like one of my subtitles said, keep it kosher. Yeah. She said, I don't think everyone will know what this means. Wow. And I, my response to her was like, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> you know, just like, I don't care when people <laughs> don't get my Harry Potter references, you know? Yeah. Fine. Me. I don't, I don't get your Game of Thrones references, <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> Ew. So, uh, okay. So, with that, I kept it in. But then the copy editing came back and it was a different person who copy edited it. And she said, I don't, with the co- with keep it kosher, I don't know what it means. So then I thought, do I define it or not? So 
in that moment, I defined it. But I have to tell you, Tracy, is that when I got my third pass back, I took out the definition. I decided that this was a reference and it was stronger to leave it in. And some people will know what it means and some people won't. And I'm totally okay with it. So when you get criticism, you have to recognize what criticism do you want to um, take on board and say, what can I learn from this? Is there something here I really should change? Because like earlier, I said to you, oh, I had this crazy moment when I was talking about giving back my book advance. Well, in my book, I think I also said, I used the word crazy. And the editor said, don't use this word because it's offensive. And in that place, I took it out because I didn't want to alienate somebody who and and have them not get my message in my book because I made a word choice that they found offensive. So there are certain times where you can, when you get criticized, is this something that you can learn from? Or is this an invitation for you to go even stronger and deeper on your own message? And one of the places that showed up, Tracy, I'm so happy that I stood my ground. That developmental editor was not happy that I didn't talk more about social media. And I took that as an invitation to go stronger and deeper in laying out my case against social media. And at the time I was making these changes, a lot of artists were moving from Instagram to Twitter. And I had this moment was like, should I put that in? And I'm so glad I didn't because look what's happening now (laughs) with Elon Musk. And I'm so glad I, I laid out my case because I don't know if you heard this, but TikTok, they're trying to push bipartisan legislation to have TikTok banned in the United States. Exactly. And and whenever you hear, by the way, bipartisan legislation, like that's as good as done. So, Yeah. 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 So that brings me to my next question, just perfectly. Great segue. So you've helped thousands of artists sell more art and you say the key is building their email list. Why do you believe the future of marketing is email and not, as you said, social media? All right. Well, it's getting <laughs> more and more obvious by the day. So, you know, Elon Musk could possibly be blowing up Twitter. We don't know. I, I don't Ooh. know about you, but I told my team we're not using it anymore. Yeah. I was like, I don't even I don't want to go there. I used to ask my podcast guests what their Twitter handle is. And now I told my assistant, take that off the application because we're not we're not retweeting anything. TikTok as I just mentioned, there's that. Instagram, let's talk about Instagram. So Instagram when I started writing the book, you had a 1% chance of being seen in the news feed. By the time I went to do my edits, it had dropped. I went back to to look at new research, it had dropped from 1% for the average Instagrammer to 0.6%. 0.6% uh, engagement in your newsfeed. Now, what about influencers and people who are making money teaching you how to get better engagement on Instagram? You want to know what their engagement rate is? 1.18%. So, wow. Yeah, it's more. So wait a minute. Like wait a minute. Not so much. If you're an influencer, yeah. you put out 100 posts and only one of those will get seen? On average? No, by, well, that's, you know. that, that's not what it means. What it means is that if you have 100,000 followers, okay, only 1,000 people will be engaging with your post. Okay, so it's engagement. They may see it, but they'll just scroll past. Yeah, but no, but here's the difference. Here's okay. the difference. And here's why email marketing matters. When you send an email, and you, you might see this with yourself, Tracy. So I have... Uh, about 24,000 people on my email list and about 24,000 people following me on Instagram. Mm -hmm. So on my email list, even on a bad day, it's like maybe 25%. And let's even, you know, just, let's just make the numbers easy. Let's say 20%. So what's 20% of 25,000? 5,000 people. Okay. (laughs) 5,000 people will open up my email. If on Instagram, 1%, 1%. So 1% of 25,000 is 250 people. But here's the biggest difference. Here's the biggest difference. Uh, in email, a person receiving my email 
they decide whether or not they're going to open the email or not. Yeah. So I have some control over that. I write a better subject line, maybe 50% will open it. On Instagram, I don't have control over who sees it in their feed. I have no control. The algorithm decides. And the person who may want it has no control over what they see and don't see. Yeah. That's the difference. The difference is email, the person receiving it decides whether they're opening it. And on Instagram, they don't decide whether they're receiving your post in their feed. I love this because, and this is your book, right? Where you just take all the noise and you consolidate it down to a direction of, nope, this is the thing that's most important. And I remember when you were talking to me about this initially, I was told that, oh, well, you need to be on TikTok. In fact, you know, my editor brought in, or not my editor, I guess the acquiring editor (laughs) was the one who said, oh, we have someone specifically who's going to work with you on TikTok. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I can't even handle Instagram. Like I just, social media is not my thing. There's too much bombarding you at all times. I can't keep on top of it. I want to respond. I don't have the time. You know, it's just too much. And I love that what you're saying is, well, just let all that go because the most important thing is that you're communicating with your audience using email, which is what I'm already doing. Yeah. It's the most reliable thing every single time. Every single time. When I post stuff on social media versus email, it's a huge difference how many people take action on what it is. Now, you, you mentioned TikTok. So one thing... You know, this is one of the things I can't remember if I put it in the book or not, but I'm pretty sure I did. So it's, I call it the death of the scroll. And when you are, when you have either a TikTok or a reel on your phone, they are encouraging you to swipe up before you even get to the end of that short form video. So what's happening is that people aren't engaging with you and your content after they see it. So I've had artists who've had, Reels go viral. I'm talking about 45,000 views and didn't even get more than a handful of new followers, didn't sell anything from it, didn't really have anyone take it. You know, if you look at your insights, very little action taken because that's not what these applications are designed to do. And on TikTok, you can follow somebody on TikTok and never see their content again. You know what? <laughs> All of those. It's just not the way my brain works. And I know that there are probably, you know, women listening who that is their thing. That is their passion. They're great at it and they should do it. But I've just realized that, you know, as you say, like you've you've got to pick those or you show actually in your book, you've got to pick those few things that really do work for you. And it it really is about getting back down to the basics. And I agree with you. I totally think that email is one of the basics. And because I'm not the only one. Yeah. And I'm not the only one saying it. So I made sure in the book, I quoted both Marie Forleo and Ryan mm-hmm. Dice. So basically the queen and king of marketers, you know, I got the bro one and the queen one. And <laughs> I have quotes of both of them saying that the future is email. I don't know if uh, they put it exactly in those words. That's how I'm interpreting it. But like, basically, they they said something to that effect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You also said creativity loves constraints. And I find that I'm always more creative when I set time boundaries around my creative time. I've never heard that. So my question is, for many of us, you know, when we're making time to be in our creative, we pop into hyperfocus and we just keep going, going, and going, and going. So I'm just curious what that means, that creativity loves constraints. And what do we do if we pop into hyperfocus and we want to keep going? Do you think that that's bad or you found for yourself personally that it makes you less creative? It does make me less creative. I mean, we, we already talked about that, where when we had more time on our calendar, we just twiddle away the day until the end of it. But you weren't actually in your creative. You know, you were... Yeah. That's right. <laughs> we couldn't get into it because we were, there was no constraint. Okay. I bet you, Tracy, that if the day that you worked on your book in the afternoon, if you had 
a wedding that you had to go to. I'm just making something up. Yeah. And you only had the two hours in the morning and you had to get it done before you went off to that wedding that you would have been just as creative in the morning as you are in the afternoon. That I would argue that. Okay. I see what you're saying. So you're talking about our ability to pop into our creativity. If we give it constraints, we can jump in much quicker. Yeah, but, then but it's more we're in it when we're in our hyper-focus, go with it. Yeah, that that is one. So when you're talking about time as the constraint, yes, that is correct. But I also, when I say creativity loves constraints, I'm talking about beyond that. So, and mostly I'm talking about there's a lot of artists who resist doing commissions, and I always find I'm the most creative when I have kind of those those constraints for commissions. For mm-hmm. the book, you have a lot of constraints. I mean, it had to be a certain number of pages. It had to follow this outline. So there were a lot of constraints that we we had with, with writing this book. You also see this, this type of creativity in effect when you watch Project Runway. Shows like that, the designers are always way more creative when they have more constraints put on them when it's that rather than it being open-ended you'll see a lot of them flail when it's a more of an open-ended designer challenge than when they said no you can only make a, a dress out of duct tape you know like then they have to get really creative i totally get that so what you're talking about is popping into the creative yeah, like, it's yes, but also when you have a constraint on you, you have to work harder to be even more creative rather than something be open ended. Yeah, if it's open ended, it's just never going to happen. Even if it's something not just time though. I'm talking about like if somebody said you have to write this chapter and all sentences must start with the letter A. I don't know, I'm coming up with like weird things. It's true. You know, right? No, it's it's totally true. And and we balk against the structure but it truly is the structure that I believe allows us to be more creative and get the work done. Yes. Yes. That's exactly right. That's what I'm saying. So it's more than just the time constraint. It's all the constraints help you become more creative. And I think, is that something you talk about in your community with ADD people that it's like, that is the structure helps us. Yeah. Yeah. Even though we think that, ah, oh, we want to be free. We want, you know, no constraints. We want to explore. We want to be curious. But the truth of the matter is then there's so much of that. We can't make those connections and put them into a form that is actually going to serve us because we're just right. out there, right? <laughs> and it makes it too hard to make decisions. Yeah. Oh, okay. So ultimately that's what it is, right? Yes. So why is it so hard to make decisions? Oh my gosh, because we want to be right and we think there's a right decision. Mm. And we and, don't know what the decision is that's going to be right, right? There's, there's. Yeah. So, one thing I talk about in my book, Artpreneur, is the Choose Your Own Adventure series. Do you remember that, Tracy, back in the 80s? Did you ever read those books? I don't. I, you know, I read it in your book and I had no idea what you were talking about, but I'm sure, you know, your audience will. No, you know, I wrote this book for 50-year-olds who have only my experience. So, 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 the, so the choose your own adventure books, they and they you can still find them. They're basically it'll start off as a mystery and it's like turn in in the person reading the book, it's written in that person where they're saying what what is it? The second person where it's saying you. Okay, so you stumble upon uh the cave. You can either go in the cave or if you choose to turn right and go down the path, turn to page 15. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine writing that? Yeah. So the whole book is like that. So there's all these different endings in the book. So the fun of it is to go back and find out what happened if you made a different decision. <laughs> the thing is, life isn't like that. And one thing I tell my kids, which kind of annoys them, is that the, I tell them there are all decisions are the right decisions. Mm-hmm. And you're better off making a decision and making your decision the right one. And you yeah. have no way of knowing how that other thing would have turned out. There's no sense in saying, oh, I should have done this. No, you shouldn't have because you don't know how that would have turned out. You really yeah. don't because you didn't do it. So when it goes the, back uh, to failure, right? Where if you believe that you make the wrong decision, you fail versus you believe that, oh, no, I learned something. So now I'm going to go through this door. That's right. 
And you just focus on making it the right decision. Now, they have seen that Jeopardy players who have quick buzzer skills, they actually practice hitting the buzzer faster. They are more likely to win. Now, why is that? Because they're hitting the buzzer before they know the correct answer. (laughs) So that's what you need to do in life is you have to make that decision before you're even 100% sure that something is the right thing to do. Because you will win in life when you're making quicker decisions. Ah, so you're in action instead of in your head. Yes, like you say. I love it. Okay, so you have a whole chapter on pricing, which was fascinating. And I want you to talk about the placebo effect where people value things that are more expensive than things that are cheaper. This is fascinating. Yeah. Well, they've done studies with wine where they gave people wine and they told them certain wines were more expensive. And then they ranked the wines and they found people who were told wine was more expensive rated them more highly than the wines that were cheaper. And I like that wine analogy a lot because I know my husband, when we go to buy wine, he wants to buy wine that's around between $15 and $20. He doesn't want to look at anything cheaper than that. I know there's other people who maybe have more expensive taste than we do that only want to buy $40 wines, but he would never buy a $7 bottle of wine and say, oh, this should have been more. Now, what you're doing when you underprice your work, whether it's art or your piano lessons or your coaching services or whatever it is that you offer in the world, people are never going to say this should have been... Uh, this is, this was, well, they might say that, but that they're not going to buy it because when they buy it, they're going to either think that it's worth this, what you, what the number you're putting on it. And people do have a snobbery ab- about that. So the best way you can have that perceived value is by actually raising the price. I found that in my own work, there was a class that I was offering, Watercolor Portrait Academy. And the first time I offered it, I offered it for $97. And the second time I offered it for $197 without changing anything about the class. And the feedback and the testimonials I got with the $197 price tag was so much better than with the $97 price tag. Because people, when they paid more, they enjoyed it more because they made sure they got to the end of it. And then when I raised the price even more to $4.97, that became even more true. Like the class changed their life, you know. So it's interesting how people value something more when they pay for it more. And it also increases their enjoyment of it. So we're not only doing ourselves a disservice when we underprice our products, our services, but we're also doing a disservice for the person who is buying it because they won't value it as much as they should. Miriam, I've had this exact experience with my program, and it's not even about charging. It's about not charging. So a couple of years ago, I started where I would offer a full scholarship to my my signature program, Your ADHD Brain is A-OK. And when I went back about a year later, I discovered that not one person that I offered the scholarship program to completed it. So rather than helping them, I was actually harming them because they were thinking, I'm sure, oh my gosh, I get something for free and I don't even do it, you know? And so what I did was I started changing it up where I would offer them a reduced rate, but they had to pay because exactly what you said, what we pay money for, we pay attention to. And that was the only way I discovered that I could actually change their lives. Them not doing it, it wasn't doing anything, but, you know, creating more, I'm sure, you know, negative comments in their own brain about themselves and their ability. So I 100% agree with that. Yeah. You also said something about, which was really interesting, when people buy more than they need, <laughs> it's a red flag that you're undercharging. And I, I, you know, thought about myself and there are some instances where I will go somewhere and everything seems so cheap. And so I end up buying everything. And then I come home and I'm like, oh my gosh, if I had just bought one of these things and it was higher priced, I just feel like I would value it more than now I've got all this crap. Did I really need it? Yeah, I've done that. <laughs> Which doesn't feel good, right? The whole experience is like, oh my gosh, that was so wasteful. Yeah. I mean, I remember the one time I did it, ABC Carpet and Home. And for those (laughs) who don't know 
to like a high-end boutique in New York, but they have these remnant sales, or at least yeah. they used to. And I went and I couldn't make up my mind which uh-huh. hallway runner I wanted for $10 <laughs> each. So I bought like five of them and I ended up having to give them away because I was like, well, I'm not going to spend. But that, you know, I, I thought that was a good thing because I just knew I didn't want to spend time making up my mind. You know, mm-hmm. this is waste. I'll just bring it home with me. And But anyway, yeah. I, but I agree with you that people just, they don't value it. And the example that Tracy's referring to in my book, Artpreneur, is when I started off doing my portraits, I didn't know what to charge. And I did what a lot of people do when they're first starting out, which is you look at what other people are charging, which means you're copying their money blocks and money and insecurities and pricing drama. Yeah. And so I was undercharging. And one of my clients ordered like five portraits of each child. I was like, okay, this, I'm clearly doing something wrong here. <laughs> And then she didn't like frame them all. Who could afford to frame all those paintings? You know, <laughs> like, yeah, they sat exactly. around her house unframed. You could have charged her the same price for one. Correct. And then she'd have one, right, that she would totally love rather Which than. she valued and framed yeah. and hung on her wall. Exactly. Right. So did she ultimately end up not framing any of them or was she able to choose? <laughs> well, it was a year know. later I was at her house and I saw they weren't framed. Ah, uh. So I, I, when I, at that time I was putting all my watercolor portraits in mats and plastic to protect them. Thank goodness. I, Cause you can't just have a watercolor sitting around and she hadn't bothered to get them to be, fr- take them to be framed. Probably cause she couldn't decide which one to frame. Maybe. Or, you know, one frame is like $400, you know, it's like, so, I mean, that's also a problem with artists. And I just spoke to an artist yesterday who did the same thing. Her first commission, she charged $200 for, and then her client spent $300 on the frame. Oh my. So that then, you know, that's a red flag too. <laughs> like your, your art, it should be more than what it costs to finish it. You know, I thought your section, speaking of pricing, um, you have a whole section on overcoming specific objections was brilliant. Oh, thank um, you. I don't think you missed one. No, because we've all we've we've heard them all. Well, and <laughs> and I'm not an artist like fine artist, right? But I have heard those objections for all kinds of things in life, right? Yeah. So I think it's totally applicable. Doesn't matter what you're doing, to be honest. No, it doesn't. So some of the objections Tracy's referring to is like, it's too expensive. I can't afford it. I don't know if I put in there, I don't have time. I probably should have had that one in there. So I did miss one. I, are I you sure if... you didn't have that in there? No, I'm not sure. I wrote this a year ago. <laughs> I don't know what I put in anymore. Do you, so Tracy, do you know when I used to interview people and they couldn't answer a question about their book, I assumed they had a ghostwriter. I, am, I feel so badly for making that assumption. Now that I've written a book and I understand, like, oh, (laughs) they just remember, right? Because I think what people don't understand is how long, uh, how long it takes to get a book to publication to actually where you have it in your hands. And I don't remember what I wrote last week. I'm I'm petrified. Right. And no, you did not write about the time. I'm looking at it right now. You did not write about. I did not write about the time. Yeah. So yeah. So okay. I have. I need to think about it, and I want to think it over. I'm saving up for it. I'm just shopping around. Yeah. This one, this is my favorite. I have to ask, I don't know, my partner, my interior director, decorator, (laughs) my mother. That one is just, I have to ask. That one makes me crazy. Like you cannot make your own decisions, right? So then you can hoist them on someone else. And then if it's the wrong decision, blame them. I know people like that. Yeah. And what I, what I want your, the listener to understand is the whole point of this section of the book. It's not about getting a yes at all costs and talking people into buying what it is you're selling. What's really important for you to understand is where people's objections are really coming from and understanding Mm -hmm. their psychology. Because if you're hearing it's too expensive, you may take that on and make it mean that what you're offering is priced too high when it doesn't. 
Yeah. So that that's why I, I I put these in here. So the I have to ask my so the the rationale behind that why people say that is because what we said before making decisions is very hard and your customer is afraid of making a mistake. Mm-hmm. So you when you understand that, that the real the objectionaries they're afraid of making a mistake. Sometimes you can talk to them and find out what it is they're afraid of. And the other reason they do it is because they want to get themselves off the hook, you know, uh, and know when you're doing this in your own life, by the way. So that's a lot of what this, this part of this section is about is if you're doing a lot of this in your own life, asking people, it's because you want to be let off the hook. And I talk about this earlier in the book, when I talk about why you should have a separate bank account for business and personal, you don't want to, when you're a woman in business, you don't want to have to ask your your partner, your romantic partner, if you have if you share personal finances, your business decisions should be independent of that. And that should be based on a business decision of what is in your business bank account. Yeah. And you know, maybe you want their opinion, but just recognize you want their opinion because you want to let yourself off the hooks. Cause if something goes wrong, you want to be able to deflect it and say, Oh, you told me it was a good idea. And it's more important for you to take full accountability and full sovereignty for your own decisions. And like I said before, make on work on making it the right decision. Absolutely. And I think that is where I feel so much pushback on, oh, I need to talk to my husband. Because, I mean, I, I get that. There are There are times when I do want to speak with my husband, but I don't need to speak with him for permission right? It's about that agency and being able to make decisions for myself. I'm not irresponsible, but I'm not a child either. Right. Exactly. So that's what I talk about also. Like check in with yourself. Do you want their permission or do you want their opinion? Yeah, exactly. Okay, Miriam. So do you have a new ADHD workaround that you can share with us? Yes. So whenever I find myself sitting at my desk, just staring into space, is that what you're talking about? So <laughs> there, there's, this, there's this app on my desktop called Focus at Will that plays music, no lyrics. And I do find that the music has conditioned me to get into the mode of working. I don't know if there's anything really secret or magical about the type of music they're playing, but by now my brain has kind of associated that music with, oh, now it's time to work. That is so interesting. So automatically you play that and you're able to pop into yeah, focus. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sometimes I'm, I've spaced out for quite a long time before I remember to put it on, but yes. Ah. <laughs> and it's called Focus at Will. Focus at Will. It also is an app on the phone, but I tend to use it on my desktop and I put my headphones on and I play the music and I set the timer. So you know how you said it, with you, it's a timer. So you can, you set the timer for like 20 minutes of the, playing the music. And then a lot of times I've found by the end of the 20 minutes, I can do another 20 minutes. Totally. But, but it's really helpful to know that I only have to focus for 20 minutes and see what I can get done. And that seems to do the magic. I love it. So Miriam, thank you so much for making my book writing process so much easier. I don't know how I'd get through this without you because you're always, you know, many steps ahead of me. You have such great advice. So thank you for that. Well, thanks so much for having me on. You're such a good interviewer and the time really did fly by. It does. It does. And thank you. So where can our listeners collect, own, invest, or adopt your book? And if they get the book, they'll know why I'm saying all this. I love the idea that you talk about using different words instead of buy. And I love the word adopt, especially if you're pointing, if you're painting like pet portraits. It's so cute. (laughs) And can you share the book bonuses they'll get if they pre-order? Yes. Well, I I will share that. But first, I want you to know you don't even have to buy the book. If you want to try before you buy, I'm giving away a free chapter. So if you go to shulmanart.com forward slash believe or better yet, DM me on Instagram. I'm at shulmanart, S-E-H-U-L-M-A-N-A-R-T. DM me the word believe and I will send you the first chapter absolutely free. Otherwise, you want to check out those book bonuses, artpreneurbook.com. I have a 12-part video series where you can 
watch me in my art journal and I'll give you all kinds of behind the scenes goodies and you're not going to want to miss that. And that's just one of the bonuses. I love it. You know, there were so many more questions that I wanted to ask of you, but we are now past an hour. And so my thought was, you know, I guess you just got to go buy the book. It's great. I bought it. I love it. Thank you so much, Miriam. Thanks, Tracy. And all of this will be in our show notes. Again, Miriam, thank you for spending time with us here today. And that is all I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Miriam, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. Come join me at tracyoutsuka.com. I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.